Hello and welcome back to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and Simon Elliott, head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, has joined me again, as usual. Well, we had a pretty spectacular week last week, Simon. What's been going on in the markets uh, this week? It's been a quieter week, actually, and probably not too surprisingly. We have the FTSE All Share, so the wider UK market, probably end up the week or so just short of a 1% rise. So not too bad, but that's following the two preceding weeks when we saw the market up 6 and 7% respectively. Similarly, investment companies sector, the investment trust sector, has had a bit of a quieter week as well, probably just slightly behind the FTSE All Share uh, when all said and done. The sector average discount um, has just widened ever so slightly, probably just short of uh, 4%, 3.7% or so uh, at the moment. But so far this year, the investment company sector is still well ahead of the UK marketplace. Investment companies up about 10% year to date, and that compares with a fall of 12% for the FTSE All Share, despite that uh, rally we've seen over the last two or three weeks. And that 22% outperformance, in fact, that's the largest kind of margin of outperformance that we've seen for investment companies over the wider UK market since 1999, back in the days, the heady days of the tech boom. Well, that is an interesting statistic and uh, quite a remarkable one anyway, if, if you think about what's been going on this year. Discount at just, as you say, shy of 4%. I mean, who could think there are any issues around the world to worry about, even though the country is in lockdown the news about the vaccine obviously continues to resonate and there's been some not insignificant uh, political gyrations in Downing Street, among other places, though we haven't heard much from Donald Trump this week. That just shows how uh, how much the world may have changed. He's on the golf course most of the time, it seems. Well, let's move on and talk about some of the things that have been going on in the investment trust space as normal. And let's start with a quick roundup of some corporate activity. Uh, there's been quite a lot of that this year, as we know. Let's just kick off with ticking off a couple of corporate moves that have been completed. JP Morgan Brazil, first of all, uh, a small investment trust that is um, sadly going out of business. That's right. Yes. So we saw this week shareholders voted in favour of its voluntary liquidation. Uh, And you're right, it was small, probably assets of about 24 million or so as it came to the end of its life. Uh, So shares have been suspended from trading and uh, the portfolio will be realised and shareholders will get their cash back probably sometime in the next week or so. But yeah, an interesting story. This fund was actually launched 10 years ago, back in 2010. It raised 47 million at launch. And at the time, there was still a lot of talk of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India and China. And JP Morgan uh, had investment trusts investing in each of those countries. Brazil, um, unfortunately, has been the one that has performed uh, probably the worst over that period. And so uh, it is a faller after 10 years. Having had some business experience with a Brazilian investment fund, not an investment trust, I hasten to add, uh, it's a familiar story in some ways, uh, what happens in Brazil. It's a country full of promise and full of natural resources, and the Brazilian people are quite wonderful. But from a sort of corporate and business point of view, it's often been disappointing, and that, I'm sure, has been the experience here. Let's move on and tick off what's happened to Murray Income, as we now have to refer to the combined entity of Murray Income and Perpetual Income and Growth. That's right. Well, this is a merger deal that we've been talking about for a number of months, and it's uh, finally completed. So Perpetual Income and Growth is no more. Uh, Murray Income is the ongoing combined vehicle. And actually, um, a couple of interesting aspects. It has a market cap of over £1 billion now, the significance of which means that it goes into the the mid cap, into the FTSE 250. And so I think that happens 
on Friday, the, the, the 20th of November. So you'd expect to see some uh, index buying around that event. Uh, but it means, as I think we talked about before, it, it takes it into the kind of the top level of that UK equity income peer group, which is always popular. Finsbury Growth and Income and City of London being the other two billionaires in that particular subsector. And what's been happening to the share price of uh, Murray Income and the discount? What can you tell us about that? So we've seen the discount narrow. In fact, it's probably on a, a little bit of a premium at the moment, probably one or two percent premium. Um, the fact that it's been promoted into the mid cap is probably uh, partly to explain for that. Um, but also, I mean, to be fair to Charles Luke, he has generated a, a strong performance record over a number of years. So within that UK equity income space, probably Joe Curtis and City of London Investment Trust have been the kind of poster child uh, with a tremendous record of consecutive years of, of dividend growth. And I'm sure there are some that would argue that, you know, Charlie Luke is, is the kind of next generation Joe Curtis. Uh, and I'm sure they'd be looking to, to build up his following with Murray Income. Indeed. Let's just quickly talk about a uh, development at Standard Life UK Smaller Companies. That's SLS. That's Harry Nimmo's uh, Smaller Companies Investment Trust. And, uh, of course, he has colleagues who work with him on that. So what's the news there? So they've announced this week that Abby Glennie, who's worked with Harry now for a number of years, has been formally appointed as the co-manager of the portfolio alongside Harry with immediate effect. As I say, she's been working with him and actually on that portfolio for some time. And uh, Harry, it's fair to say, is an experienced investor, a bit of a veteran, certainly in the UK small cap market space. But he has no intention of going anywhere in the here and now. He intends to be uh, around for certainly the next couple of years. Certainly the last time I caught up with him, which, to be fair, was probably at the back end of last year now, before all these terrible lockdowns occurred. But I think it was fair to say he was enjoying investing in smaller companies as much as he he ever was. And uh, I don't think it was any great hurry to uh, retire to the golf course. But it does make sense, I think, to appoint Abby alongside him. Obviously, it provides continuity uh, and they're a good team and work very well together. Yes, I have, funny enough, I've done a, uh, quite a long interview with Harry Nimmo for the uh, next edition of the Investment Trust Handbook, which is coming out next month. Uh, and he has some, a lot of interesting things to say, both about his uh, his career and about uh, the smaller companies universe in which he's been uh, uh, one of the more successful uh, participants for, as you said, many years now. Back to the 1990s, if you like, when he started uh, uh, having his own uh, smaller companies fund to run. What's been happening at UK Mortgages, another trust we've talked about. There was an abortive move by M&G early this year to get involved in this one. And the board has been having a rethink as a result of that and talking to its shareholders. Where have they got to on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think the last time we talked about this, I think the board were very much in two minds, uh, which we were kind of remarked on as being slightly unusual development. Uh, They didn't know whether to kind of push forward uh, and change a few things, but effectively continue or maybe look to wind up. And they decided they were going to have a good chat with shareholders and and, uh, get a view on which way the wind was blowing. Well, they've done that. And actually, they are now recommending that the fund continue. There'll be a vote at a general meeting on the 4th of December. And uh, effectively, what they're saying is, look, give us a couple of years. If we're not trading at a premium around NAV in the 20 days preceding the second anniversary of the vote, then we'll offer a managed wind down. Um, They're also going to return some capital to shareholders for a tender offer, uh, probably somewhere in the region of 35 to 40 million pounds. So that provides liquidity and it should act to narrow the discount. Uh, And they've also given some guidance on the the dividend as well, a four and a half P and given some target returns. So they've put a package together and that will be put to shareholders on the 4th of December. And if approval support is not forthcoming, then they'll go forward on a managed wind down basis. 
Yes, I noticed a couple of things about that. One of the things that was interesting was that obviously they have slightly changed the mandate of the trust in response to uh, the concerns that shareholders have expressed. Uh, they also noted that if they did go for a wind down, it could take up to three years to complete, which is an interesting fact, which I, I wasn't entirely aware of in regard to uh, you know how quickly you can get out of some of these uh, mortgage commitments that they invest in. What has the market been making of all this? So we know the M&G was made an offer or proposal a few weeks ago. How is the share price now on the discount compared to what M&G had in mind? So we've seen the share price go up about 6% or so over the last month, uh, the discount around 15 16%. So I'm fairly sure off the top of my head, the share price is still below the level indicated by M&G. Um, I think that, to be fair, they increased their potential offer back in the summer. But it, even so, it seems to be moving in the right direction. So that would suggest that uh, there is some value there, or at least the investors in that trustee do see some value there which presumably they must have thought if they uh, rejected the M&G, or at least if they were happy for the M&G proposal to fail. Now, the market's been strong, as we said, for the last uh, two, three weeks in particular. And sure enough, along comes uh, further news of fundraising. There's been a quite significant uh, number of fundraisings in the last few weeks. Let's pick up on a couple of those. So let's start with an investment trust called BBGI Global Infrastructure. That is BBGI, a ticker, not surprisingly. What are they uh, going to do? What have they done by way of fundraising, Simon? Yeah, they announced a placing for up to £55 million via a book build process. So they had an indicated price range that they are offered, you know, asked the shareholders or potential shareholders to express their interest. Uh, the range was 164p to 172p. And they've actually announced that that £55 million has been raised. It was oversubscribed. And actually, the price of issuance was 169p, so somewhere in the middle of the range. But it's been done on quite a substantial premium. This one has traded very well. It was probably on about a 30% premium or so ahead of the announcement that they looked to, they were looking to raise a bit more capital. That 55 million will be used to pay down their debt facility. They're drawn on that to acquire a 25% interest in a in a bridge in Canada, not just any bridge, quite an impressive bridge uh, called the Signature on the St. Lawrence Group which is the operator of the Samuel de Chaplin Bridge Corridor in Montreal, Quebec. Three and a half kilometres worth of bridge, and that's got a 125-year lifespan on it projected. So it's a similar story that we've seen on a number of these infrastructure funds, effectively, that they use their debt facility to acquire assets and then come back to the marketplace and raise capital against and effectively pay down that debt. And the advantage of doing it in that way is that it avoids cash drag uh, on their performance. Yes, that makes sense uh, to me. I think I noted that something like 40% of their uh, assets are now in Canada. So this is it's a global infrastructure fund, but it does have a, a Canadian weighting to it, a bit of a maple leaf flavour to it. How unusual is it to be able to raise uh, funds in a placing at such a significant premium? It does seem uh, quite remarkable, the scale of the premium. Yeah, I mean, the premium is probably somewhere in the region of about 24% or so. Uh, and clearly that's accretive to, to ongoing shareholders. If you're issuing money or issuing new shares and that kind of premium, it's clearly beneficial to the NAV itself. We have seen uh, a number of the uh, infrastructure funds, particularly the renewable infrastructure funds, uh, issued new shares at quite significant premiums. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head if 24% is the largest premium we've, we've seen, but it was certainly towards the upper end of the range. And I think it's probably worth noting on this particular one that this is actually a self-managed investment company. In other words, there's no kind of third-party external fund manager. So 
the argument that the managers uh, have always offered is that they're not incentivized to kind of grow assets, that they're, they're quite keen that things are done at the right price. Um, and there's always the, the inference that the valuations of not just this fund, but a number of the, the funds in this sector are conservatively valued. Uh, and certainly the last time I talked to the managers about this, uh, and we made the point that if a similar portfolio were to be available on the secondary market, would it be available at the price, the NAV price at which you value it? And I think the answer to that was was no, it would probably be worth quite a bit more. So I think, you know, many people would argue that these are conservatively valued uh, NAVs, uh, and therefore maybe that's one of the factors behind the, the premium ratings. It's also worth noting, obviously, the yields as well. So BBGI, global infrastructure yields over 4% at the moment, uh, and in that space of the marketplace, it's probably four and a half to five percent seems to be the range for many of them so yield is clearly a key part of this story and the other key part of the story of course is that you get the yield but you also get the security of having some quite long life project as you already noted with this canadian bridge and therefore you get not exactly guaranteed uh, longevity of that kind of return but you've got a pretty strong underpinning to the returns you can make from that perhaps you could just explain what uh, they talked about you know availability based uh, concessions what does what does that actually mean yeah that's actually quite an important part of bbgi's story so compared with some of the other infrastructure plays so some of the other similar type plays that availability based means that as long as the asset is available to use that you will get paid for it conversely uh, some of the other kind of social infrastructure funds it's more a case that you're reliant on people using toll roads would be a good example that that obviously usage of toll roads can can ebb and flow and in a coronavirus lockdown, then, then clearly they are going to ebb a little bit. And so therefore, you might take a hit on the income that you receive in any one period of time. In the case of BBGI, as long as the asset, be it a bridge or whatever it is, is available, then they get paid for it. So it's seen as a, as a lower risk asset. So it's a long life, lower risk asset, which is uh, obviously has many appeals in the current climate. Let's move on to another pronounced placing. Uh, let's have a look at Bluefield Solar Income. We've mentioned them in the past more than once. Uh, the solar funds have been very uh, popular. What's their story in terms of placing this week? So uh, Bluefield Solar Income Fund, they announced they were looking to raise uh, up to about £45 million at a placing price of 124p. Uh, and lo and behold, that's exactly what they did. They, that was an oversubscribed placing uh, and issued 36.5 million shares at that price. So again, similar to BBGI, they'd had their debt had crept up. So it was about 43% or so of the gross asset value. Uh, and they've said that they really didn't want to exceed kind of target leverage between 40 and 50%. So they raised a bit more money. That leverage now is probably nearer to about 37%. So again, they kind of delevered their balance sheet to an extent. And as we said with them before, the solar funds, they are still trading at a premium, presumably. They haven't exhausted, by implication, the total possible demand from investors. Is that Would that be fair? Absolutely right. So Bluefield Solar, the premiums come off a little bit, but still in a very healthy 16% or so. And again, that's probably a little bit of a pattern that we see when these funds come around to raise more money, um, that you probably see a little bit of premium erosion because invariably the placing price is done at a slight discount to the share price uh, ahead of the announcement. So that would have been the case in this particular instance. So let's just pick up another interesting little development at this stage, which is you know, small placing by uh, BlackRock Throgmorton Trust. Can you tell us what the story is there? This is obviously something to do with their potential uh, capacity to issue shares. What's been the story there? Yeah, so BlackRock Throgmorton Trust has been hugely successful in terms of its performance, but particularly in terms of its ability to issue new shares, which is uh, until recently quite a, a rare thing in the UK small cap sector that it finds itself. 
basically it had about 3.3 million new shares capacity left uh, and so rather than kind of trip that out to the marketplace they said well look we'll, we'll make these available uh, in a placing uh, and it, actually we found out at the end of the week that of the 3.3 2.7 million were issued and that's raised them uh, just over 18 million pounds and Bruin Dolphin a well-known wealth manager has taken quite a chunk of that about five million pounds or so um, so I'm sure they'll be quite pleased with that they have a limited scope to issue new shares now, but they're going to issue a circular basically looking for shareholder approval to issue up to 10% of their share capital going forward. So they will be back on the issuance track again in short order. Yes, and they've had a very uh, successful uh, period, particularly when other UK uh, smaller company trusts have been struggling a little bit. And obviously they have been trading at a small premium, which is, uh, again, contrasts quite well with what's been going on in the uh, in the wider sector. That's right. So um, in the last 12 months, they've probably averaged about a 1% premium. Uh, they're probably on about a 2 or 3% premium at present. Uh, and just to give that some perspective, the kind of weighted average, market cap weighted average discount across the UK small cap group is probably about 6 or 7% at the moment. So they are one of the highest, if not the highest uh, rated small cap fund at the moment. Okay, so we'll move on on the placing front or issuance front. We've got a couple more trusts which are looking to issue new shares. Let's start with one we mentioned again before, which is Gore Street Energy Storage Fund, GSF. We've talked about that at some length before. Just to reiterate there, where are we at on that particular programme? So they've made proposals uh, for a £250 million share issuance programme, uh, but that will include an initial issue for up to about 60 million new shares. Um, and they've got a pipeline of assets that they will uh, look to kind of fund with any money that they raise through that. There has to be a shareholder vote, and that will happen on the 7th of December to give approval for these proposals. But effectively, they're, they're looking to kind of get all this lined up uh, ahead of that. So that will be quite significant if they, if they manage to issue 250 million shares. I mean, their share prices are what, somewhere around a pound, I think. So that would be quite significant if they actually get to issue all those that number of shares, will it not, given their size at the moment? Yeah, so just to give some perspective on where they're at, just short of about 84 million shares at the moment. So they've got a market cap of about 86 million. So to your point, that they're trading about £1 and 3p at the moment. So if they did manage to issue all 250 million, that would be a real game changer. But certainly, again, I mean, they're clearly ambitious to grow uh, this investment company. And clearly, they, they've got a pipeline of assets ready to go. So what they're doing, in effect, they're putting in part the apparatus to allow the growth over a period of time. And then finally, in the issuance uh, segment of this podcast, let's talk about Manchester and London Investment Trust, an interesting, not so little trust that uh, we've talked about in the past, not least for its uh, interesting decision. We found out that it actually owned some Wimbledon debentures, which they sold uh, earlier this year. Uh, that's an interesting asset class. I'm sure you'd agree. What have they said and, and where have we got to in their process to uh, to issue new shares? So they published a prospectus this week that had been approved by the FCA in relation to the issue of up to 40 million uh, new shares for a general share issuance programme. So again, just to give this some perspective, they've got about 37.5 million or just under that uh, shares currently in issue and they've got a market cap of about 236 million. So they're a constituent of the FTSE All Share. Uh, so they have seen quite a lot of growth, but this effectively uh, allows the company to kind of double in size, should that be possible. Uh, the prospectus is valid for 12 months, and they've made it very clear that new shares will only be issued at a premium to NEV, which is what you'd expect from investment trusts in general, and it's really the powers are there in order to meet new demand from shareholders. And again, whether they manage to double their size over the next 12 months, 
in the first 10 months of this year, and bear in mind it has been a quite a difficult year for fundraising, they issued about 5 million shares or so worth over 30 million. So they have been successful in, in issuing new shares. So just remind us, perhaps this somewhat paradoxically, the fact that this investment trust named Manchester in London is actually in the global sector, I believe. Is that right? That's absolutely correct, yeah. Uh, and it's run by a gentleman called Mark Shepherd, who is a large shareholder in, in the investment trust. And he and his investment team have really focused in on the opportunity offered by some of the, the, the technology uh, companies around the world. So it's very, very global focused, particularly on, on US tech, but broader than that. So quite an interesting portfolio. And if people do get the chance to read his uh, monthly investor update letters, uh, they're certainly worth a read. Always a slightly different take on what's going on in the world in those. Splendid. Okay, so let me just ask you, um, this is often quite a busy period for uh, fundraising for investment trusts, the autumn running up to Christmas. Uh, is it is it a surprise that we're seeing uh, quite a few run of these things at the moment? Obviously, it was the market was effectively closed for a period earlier this year, but uh, uh, is it a surprise to you to see all these uh, Little fundraising is coming out and not so little fundraising is coming out. I mean, it, it's fair to say that you're right, that this is always a busy time for fundraising. Any number of people are quite incentivized uh, to get these things completed by the end of any calendar year. Um, I think, again, this year has been a little bit different for any number of reasons. Uh, and the fact that we really didn't see anything issued for the first seven or eight months of the year has clearly meant that there's, a, there's a real backlog. Um, I mean, there are a number of IPOs or potential IPOs out there that we'll find out in the next week or two whether they've been successful probably the experience over the last month or two suggests that it is difficult to issue or to launch new uh, investment companies uh, and clearly the uh, Schroders in the case of British Opportunities and some of the other names that have been mentioned out there as well they'll have their fingers crossed that they are successful uh, in terms of uh, getting their new funds away. This may sound a rather um, silly question but where where is this all this money coming from in other words uh, who are the people who are essentially looking across the whole piece who is actually backing these placings and uh, such ipos as we've seen i mean there's a lot of demand for cash obviously from shareholders in publicly listed companies we know that a lot of companies have had to go to their shareholders to raise new money at british airways or international iag is a good example for example so where where is this money coming from would you say is it coming from the usual sources or is there some new source of demand in one or two of these cases? I don't know if it's necessarily new, a new source of demand. I mean, I think, you know, historically we've seen support for investment companies from institutional investors, particularly the more specialist mandates. Uh, wealth managers have been very strong supporters of the investment company sector for uh, any number of years. And in the recent uh, probably five to ten years, we've seen a real pickup in demand from retail investors. So people using investment platforms such as AJ Bell and Hargreaves, Lansdowne and so on and so forth interacting with the with the sector and I think those three broad groups remain interested clearly different mandates suit and appeal to different people within that but when you look at some of the ratings across the investment companies universe you look at some of the premiums that we've just been talking about in terms of the uh, infrastructure space in particular I think these are assets that are in demand I don't think it's any surprise that we're hearing stories or um, you know media reports of other investment companies potentially being launched. So Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust being a case in point, they're looking to raise £200 million and that will potentially close on the 3rd of December. But it's playing to that idea of offering a quite attractive levels of yield backed by uh, alternative asset classes. Okay, so now let's move on to the results then. And we've talked about Murray Income in the equity income space. Let's uh, catch up on what's been going on at uh, Edinburgh Investment Trust. It's been an eventful year for them, as we've also discussed in the past. What have been their results out this uh, out this week? So they had their interim results out to the 30th of September. 
not uh, too bad a period at all. Their NAV total return was up about 8%, and that was ahead of the wider UK market. So the FTSE All Share probably up about 7%. Why is it meaningful? Well, this was the first set of results that we've seen under the new management, as you rightly say, Majedi were appointed manager and they took uh, control from March this year. So this is their first kind of reporting period under their watch. They had a number of holdings that kind of go well for them in that period. Uh, and they also increased their, their gearing up to about 12%, which obviously clearly helped in a rising market. Interestingly enough, the, the revenue return per share was down about 10p or so, which actually was over 40% year on year. But they had given us guidance already about a week or two ago on what they intended to do with the dividend, if you remember. They're going to effectively maintain it uh, for this financial year, of which this is the first half, at 28.65p, albeit 4.65p of that will be a special dividend. Uh, and the idea is they're going to reset their dividend at 24p on an ongoing basis. And they see that as more sustainable uh, and indeed providing potential for dividend growth going forward. Yes, it's interesting that they've uh, you know been having this high level of gearing. They obviously feel that the UK uh, market in which they're investing is attractive at the current valuations. I mean, there's a lot of there's a the monthly survey, fund manager survey, which uh, Bank of America does every month, which researches what uh, institutional fund managers are thinking about the future. The UK remains very unloved in the world of uh, global investment. Anyway, we've been that way for a number of years, which is why the UK stock market is trading at uh, such a large discount to other developed markets. Do you sense that there is interest in the UK stock market now from overseas investors as well as from uh, domestic investors, given the the valuation level? Obviously, there's a lot of risk around in the UK for reasons that are well known. But what's your read of the current situation, Simon? I'm not sure about the overseas investors. I wonder whether it still feels a little bit too early. Um, And I think possibly people want to see how the Brexit situation or the ongoing uh, relationship with the EU plays out. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we have seen a pickup in interest from the UK-based investors. And we've also seen increasing levels of bullishness from UK-focused fund managers. So just catching up with Nick Train of Finsbury Growth and Income this week, uh, I mean, he was very clear about the value opportunity that he believes exists in the UK marketplace at the moment, to the point that he's been quite happily uh, buying more shares in Finsbury Growth and Income, so his investment trust this year. Uh, and that's a fairly common story, to be perfectly honest. Yes, I mean, the the point about it is, I think, when, when markets move to uh, significant uh, discounts on either valuation grounds or, or PE ratios compared to you know other markets around the world, there's usually a reason. It's usually the back cloth is quite gloomy for whatever reason. And you have to be a little bit courageous to actually invest more money in the UK market when it's at those levels. But it's precisely at those levels that you're liable to make the highest returns in future if it turns out that the prospects for the UK improve relative to people's expectations. So it's an interesting question. I hear a lot of people talking about it at the moment, whether the UK market is sufficiently cheap uh, on almost uh, any measure you care to look at to justify putting some more money into it. And, uh, you know, you pay your money and takes your choice here. But clearly, once the Brexit uh, situation is clarified, if indeed it is clarified, then at least uh, people will be able to place their bets, if you like, with a somewhat more confidence. But by then, of course, the price may have also changed. Let's talk about the results from Schroeder Income Growth. Uh, what's the story there, Simon? So Schroeder Income Growth had their annual results out to the end of August. Clearly a, a tough year. That 12-month period was a tough period. Their NAV total return was down 13% just slightly uh, worse than the, the FTSE all share. And their share price return, total return, was actually only down 7%. So 
So that worked in their favor, and that was really as a function of that, the discount narrowed from about 8% to 2%, uh, which is, um, in fact, it's probably trading around NAV at the moment. So uh, a number of good holdings that worked in their favor, including Pets at Home, which is every fund manager's favorite at the moment, a lot of them talking about Pets at Home, uh, Azura, and they're also underweight uh, Shell and HSBC. So they managed to increase their, their dividend by just 1.6%, uh, but they use revenue reserves to do that. Uh, and they've also got a continuation vote coming up in December, uh, which is one they offer shareholders every five years. Yes, Pets at Home has done remarkably well. It does it seem to be a almost direct beneficiary of the COVID-19 pandemic. People stuck at home, they seem to want more servicing for animals. They've, they're very happy to have animal company, even if they haven't got human company. And that's, uh, that stock has done very well. I talked to a farm manager this week who was uh, an owner in that one, uh, though I think he's... Uh, Sold a few subsequently. Let's talk about results overseas from Montanaro European Smaller Companies Trust. What's the story there? So Montanaro European Smaller Companies Trust had its interim results out for the six months to the end of September. Uh, I'm in a very strong period uh, for this particular investment trust. The NAV total return was up nearly 52% uh, compared with a rise of 35% for its composite benchmark. The share price total return was 60%, which is not bad going for a six-month period. And that was a reflection of the fact that discount narrowed from 8% to 2%. Uh, so this investment trust is managed by uh, George Cook, who I think we talked about before. And unsurprisingly, given those numbers, he's got a real kind of growth focus uh, to what he does. So if you look at the underlying portfolio, over 30% is in technology stocks. He's got a big bet on healthcare, about 20% or so. Uh, and that's really come good for him this year as well. Um, interesting, I mean, it is European smaller companies. Uh, and it is all about those companies itself. But if you look at the kind of geographic weightings of his portfolio, he's got about 26% or so in Sweden and 22% in Germany. Uh, and certainly just as in terms of Sweden, that they just keep producing very attractive uh, growth companies that suit his mandate. So a very strong period for this investment trust. Yeah, they're having a good run now at Montanaro across uh, their whole fund range. Let's talk about personal assets. Uh, very popular with a certain type of private investor has an absolute real return kind of mandate approach. They've had some results. How have they been doing during the uh, the pandemic uh, fallout this year? So personal assets have their interim results for the six months to the end of October. Their NAV rose about 3% or so in that time, and that compared with a fall of 3% for the FTSE all share. Um, so, uh, you know, as you rightly observed, they're, they're very much to protect and increase in that order, the value of shareholders funds. So it's a very interesting approach. Uh, Sebastian Lyon of Triassic Management has been um, responsible for the, the portfolio since March 2009, uh, and since which time I think they've generated an annualised return somewhere in the region of about 8% or so, so a very consistent outperformer. They've moved a, a few things around in the portfolio, so I should say actually it's a kind of a multi-asset type approach. Um, so they'll have gold, a little bit of gold exposure there. They have um, some gilts, some bonds, some inflation-protected bonds as well, treasury bonds. Um, but they also have exposure to some high-quality growth companies as well. Uh, and that's been quite a significant driver of returns over the long term. Yes, and Sebastian Land's uh, commentaries on the market are always well reading. I think I've said that before, but I find them particularly interesting from his uh, position having a, a multi-asset global perspective on the world. It's notable that they've actually sold their stake in uh, Coca-Cola, which is one of Warren Buffett's... Uh, what do you call permanent holdings? His favourite holding period is forever. He's been an investor in Coca-Cola for 
more than I think uh, 40 years but uh, Sebastian's obviously decided that uh, the price has got too rich for in Coca-Cola and they've replaced that with some other companies including American Express and Visa the payment companies which are doing well in a lockdown world let's move on to some more specialist trusts let's kick off with biotech growth trust BIOG they've had some results and they presumably be doing quite well I imagine they have indeed, yep. So they had their interim results out for the six-month period to the end of September. In that time, they had an NAV total return of up 49%, and that compares with about 21% for their NASDAQ biotech index. What really drove that outperformance? Well, they were overweight emerging biotech companies, and they're overweight emerging markets as well, actually. So they've got quite involved in the China market, the Chinese market. They've also been the beneficiary of some M&A activity, and some crossover investments which have um, come to the market have been IPO'd. So again, always interesting to hear their comments uh, on what's going on in the healthcare and biotech space. Jeff Shu of Orbimed has been uh, responsible for this portfolio for a number of years. They believe the US election will be favourable for the healthcare sector in general, and they're very much focused on um, in significant innovation, including China, and also continued M&A as well. And, and I think possibly more important uh, to note is the fact they believe that valuations are reasonable uh, in this end of the marketplace. So though we hear a lot about valuations, particularly on the technology stocks, and have they got a little bit ahead of themselves? Is there too much growth factored in? Certainly the people at Orbimed argue that valuations or overvaluations is not an issue in the healthcare and the biotech space. Well, I guess those results just underline, as the results we've heard from obviously Scottish Mortgage and the Technology Trust this year, I mean, it really has been a year of polarised returns. If you've been in the right place, you're going to have made an awful lot of money. And if you are uh, been in the wrong place, then uh, you've suffered comparatively. So they've done well. What's happening in that particular sector? It's quite a small sector, but it's an interesting one. They have a couple of competitors or trusts they're often compared to. International Biotech is one. So what's been going on in that sector in terms of uh, trading and ratings? Yeah, so I mean, there's a number of very highly regarded uh, investment trusts in that sector. So you're right, probably the nearest rival is International Biotech. Biotech growth trust itself is probably trading on about a 1% premium. International Biotech is probably on about a 2% premium. And both of those ratings are a bit tighter than we've seen over on average over the previous 12 months. So Biotech growth probably averaged about a 5% discount and International Biotech on about a 3% discount. Uh, so in terms of the, the, the performance, certainly over the last 12 months, it's been a very strong period for biotech growth, up 66% in NAV terms, uh, international biotech up 32% over the same period. But biotech growth in that biotech and healthcare subsector is, is the strongest performer. There's another company which has only come to market towards the end of last year, RTW Venture, that's also performed very well on the back of a, a number of IPOs for its largely unquoted um, portfolio. Well, speaking about strong performers and technology, I guess it is probably just worth noting something that I think we've foreshadowed in the past, which is that uh, Tesla is going to be admitted to the S&P uh, 500 index. Once a very controversial company, it now seems to be coming almost mainstream in the way that investors regard it, though uh, its founder, Elon Musk, remains a controversial figure. That's going to be uh, quite significant. That's had an impact already, I think, on the share price of uh, Tesla, which has already been fairly spectacular. So I guess that uh, Scottish Mortgage has been a beneficiary of that. Let's move on and talk about international public partnerships. Is there anything to say there? They've had a portfolio update. 
we know which sector they're in. Tell us what, uh, what's been going on there. Yeah, so they, they provided an update to the marketplace just covering up the period uh, from the 1st of July till mid-November. They said there's been no material changes to operational financial performance since the interim results were published in the early part of September. There are a couple of issues on, on some of their holdings, which I think we've talked about before in, in weeks gone by on Tidewind and Diablo, a couple of their holdings, but no new NAV in, in terms of this update. But they made the point that the movements in government bond yields are expected to be positive, uh, while they see sterling strength are small negative. So it was an update for the marketplace. I don't think it had any particular kind of impact in the short term on, on how they're performing. Okay, so let's move on and talk about what's been happening in the property sector. We know that's been very uh, controversial uh, or very difficult times for, for some property companies and very good times for other property companies, depending which assets they're in. Uh, interesting to see that the AIC, the Association of Investment Companies, the trade body for the investment trust sector, came out with this week with some comments on proposals as about how open-ended funds should be managed. They're obviously in competition with investment trusts that invest in property, and that's been an ongoing story for some time. There is a proposal out there that the uh, sort of notice period for uh, open-ended property funds should be extended, uh, and that may be of interest to investment trust property investors as well. But anyway, let's just pick up on some of the uh, the results we've had this week. We've had interim results from two property trusts, at least AEW UK REIT and Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust. Let's start with uh, AEW UK REIT. So they had their interim results out to the end of September. Uh, their NEV per share was down slightly in the period, about 0.4% or so. But the, the rental income, which I think everyone's quite interested in rental income for all these property funds at the moment, that was down as well. So that was about 8.1 million in the period compared with 8.8 .8 in the equivalent period. And really the story there that they had a, a sale of an asset with the resulting loss of the largest tenant. But they have declared dividends of uh, 4p per share, and that's in line with their 8p target for the year. And in terms of their rent collection for the fourth quarter of this year, they've collected 72% so far and also expect 15% to be received prior to the quarter end under monthly payments. And again, this is a kind of familiar story that we've seen for a number of these property companies. It, uh, probably AEWK REIT, which is one of the smaller commercial property funds, that they have the distinction of being, I think, the only one now that hasn't actually cut its dividend this year, though obviously it's it's not covered, that 8p dividend uh, will not be covered. So let's talk about Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust then, SREI. Their interim results are out as well. How did they get on compared to uh, AEW UK? So uh, Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust had their interim results out to the end of September, so exactly the same period. Their NEV was down about 3% or so in that time. So their NEV total return was down about 2% when you factor in the income. The property portfolio was valued just short of 400 million at the period end, and that reflected a like-for-like -like decrease of about down about 3% or so. Uh, again, rent collection for the, the quarter ending 31st of December 2020. They're about 86% so far, and that's ahead of uh, the equivalent date in the previous quarter. So again, not necessarily all bad news, but a very similar picture in terms of their results. I mean, when you actually break down the portfolio into the different segments, industry, offices, other and retail, it's retail where all these uh, property investment companies are hurting. Retail was down about 10% in terms of value over that six month period. Uh, and Schroeder Real Estate have about 23% of its portfolio in retail. So that's where the pain is being felt. 
They suspended the dividend on this company back in uh, March-April time. Uh, That was obviously in response to the pandemic, but they reinstated that and they've increased it since then. So they're up to 75% of the pre-pandemic level. Uh, So that gives them a prospective yield uh, of between about 55 and 6% at the moment. So both these trusts have been buying back their shares, and that's an interesting issue, isn't it? If they believe that... uh... The NAVs are reliable, and if they believe that the discounts for which they're trading, which remain significant, are, uh, are too wide, it would suggest that there is potential to uh, buy back shares in the normal way for any trust that thinks that its uh, discount is too wide. But of course, they have to balance that against the requirements of their balance sheet. They obviously take on debt and so on, so they can't be as free with the cash, perhaps, as some other trusts might be. So what's been happening? I mean, how many trusts in the property sector have been buying back shares, Simon. Is that a trend that we might expect to see continuing in the light of the improved prospects that they appear to be seeing at the moment? Uh, it's definitely a possibility, and you're correct. We have seen a number of uh, these property funds now starting to uh, put buyback programs in place. The, the thing to note is the advantage of buybacks over just simply increasing their dividends back up in line is it gives them a bit more flexibility. So at the moment, clearly all eyes are on in terms of the, the rent collections, how are they going, but what we don't know, of course, is you know as we go through this winter, how the rents will be affected again. So what might be quite appealing for some of these property companies is rather than just simply ratchet up their dividend, but run the risk of having to bring it down again, use that surplus cash that's coming from the rent to actually initiate a buyback program and just uh, tighten in the rating. Obviously, there's some very wide discounts on some of these commercial property companies. We can understand the reasons why. But obviously, if you put buybacks in place and do buy back at, I don't know, 30, 35 percent discount levels, then that uh, presents an uplift to NAV. So for ongoing shareholders, there is an attraction to that. Very good. Well, let's see if there's more of that happen in the next few weeks. Uh, If it is, some might interpret that as a vote of confidence in some of these property investment trusts. Let's see what happens. I'm afraid there's no news this week from any uh, music royalty fund. I don't think that I've seen anyway. So that's a disappointment this week. All I want for Christmas is another update from Hypnosis or its new rival, Roundhill Music Royalty Fund. But uh, for now, we'll have to make do with that. It's been, as you said, a a less exciting week than perhaps last week. But uh, I dare say that next week will also be of great interest. So thank you, Simon, for your time as always. And we look forward to talking again next week when who knows what else will be new. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.